This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian and author Stuart Kells. Stuart joined me to talk about his new book co-authored with Scott Hamilton. It's called Sold Down the River, How Robber Barons and Wall Street Traders Cornered Australia's Water Market. And it's also great to be joined once again by Stuart Kells, He's been so popular on this show. He's been on my Radiothon shows before. So that goes to show just how much of a fixture he is and certainly has contributed a great deal to Australia and Melbourne's cultural life with his many previous books. And Stuart is going to be discussing with me today a book that he's co-authored with a colleague, Scott Hamilton. The book is called Sold Down the River, How Robber Barons and Wall Street Traders Cornered Australia's Water Market. And uh, yeah, previously I've chatted with Stuart about all manner of topics, including how amazing libraries are, which was obviously a favourite of mine. Uh, We even talked about the big four accounting firms and the history of those and where that all comes from. So um, there's been a whole range of really fascinating topics that Stuart has delved into and uh, we've you know, nerded out on um, his bookshelf and his obsession with rare books. So uh, hopefully we'll be nerding out today again. So a big warm welcome back to the show, Stuart Kells. Hi, and how are you doing, Stuart? Thanks, Amy. Really well. Good good to be chatting again. Uh, I wouldn't expect nothing less than to nerd out together. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of different things we can nerd out on, um, including markets. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, to be talking to you in this sort of, you know, digital way because I, I really enjoy coming in in person and, and chatting at Triple R. So, um, yeah, hopefully next time we chat will be in person. But, yeah, great to be on the program. Yes, one day it will happen and that's just another reason for everyone to be vaccinated so that we can all go do those things again in a more safe way. I really enjoy chatting in person because we always have a lot of fun and I know we're going to today even if it sounds like it is a dry topic, because I know some people may not be super obsessed with financial markets or water markets, but this is not a dry book and it's definitely not a dry topic. So it's um, good that we are going to get into some debunking and lift the lid, peel back the curtain, so to speak, on these water markets, which are a, I guess, a semi-new feature of Australia if we look at the full history of water in Australia. And you do go through a great history, prehistory, uh, before 2004, uh, when these water markets were brought in. So, yeah, there are some really interesting and exciting parts of this book. But I just wanted to ask, first of all, given that you do obviously write about some very different topics and you know we've spoken about Shakespeare and libraries as I said and and the big four what really sparked off this journey to do what is a lot of research on a topic that is particularly dense and technical and difficult to understand because obviously you have to understand it very well in order to distill it for the reader yeah and so I think that's a really important point that even though it's a, a complex space and in fact, in some ways the complexity is deliberate and we can come back to that. But the, the point of the, the book and the role of the authors is to you know, cut through that and distill and to clarify this space. And I think that's a really important purpose and hopefully a, a, a function of this book 
to really kind of unpick that complexity and to get through it and to to show people what's really happening behind this kind of cloak, which is a pretty forbidding cloak, right? People looked at it and said, oh, God, I don't even know what's going on. I don't know the difference between the, an entitlement and an allocation or, a, um, or uh, you know, different kinds of water rights. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an inherently complex space that we've tried to simplify. There's a couple of different pathways into this book of, of why we ended up writing it. One was, in a very direct way, it sprung out of some work that Scott and I were doing on the politics of bipartisanship in Australia, uh, and we'd been doing some research just on different examples and modes of bipartisanship. About three or four years ago, we did a couple of uh, articles for The Mandarin, which is a public sector newspaper, and uh, for the uh, Pursuit magazine at the University of Melbourne around the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And as a result of that, people reached out to us, particularly farmers and irrigators, and said, look, this is, you know, really incredible story you need to, to tell and come and listen to us. So we sort of followed those leads. And, and so in that sense, the story, you know, came to us and, and we, we were drawn into it. But in terms of the book, I'm glad you mentioned Shakespeare and libraries and, and others, because from my point of view as, as an author, there's a few different kind of criteria that you need to to meet in order to treat something at book length. Um, One of them is that it has to be a book scale story, (laughs) which which obviously I think this is. Mm. Um, One is that it has to be something that's, you know, of world interest, of of top level interest, but that can best be told from Australia, right? Um, So the Penguin book, for example, is a global story, um, but perversely a lot of the archive and a lot of the key people were in Australia. Uh, so it was an ideal one. Um, and, you know, the Argyle Diamonds book is another example of that. It's a global story, but um, very much an Australian story as well. And then the other sort of common factor in all of these books is that there's an element of myth busting and of kind of going into a different area and saying, look, a lot of what people are saying in this space is just not true and not well founded. So in the Penguin book, um, there was this sort of myth of Alan Lane as this sort of literary figure who single-handedly founded Penguin and he was the sort of commercial and literary driver of Penguin books. None of that is true, right? That's completely a a, a cliche and a chestnut, but it's just not true. Um, And in the Shakespeare book, both on the orthodox side and on the heretical side of of the uh, Shakespeare debates, there are all sorts of mythical ideas of Shakespeare and Shakespearean authorship. And so, you know, it's a book-length topic, it's an international topic and, you know, you get the fun of going in and saying, well, actually a lot of the stuff that has been written about this is, is um, nonsense. And that's very much the case uh, with this book. There's a, a sort of a view, we'll go into the, a bit of the history of the market, um, but fundamentally, historically, water and land were connected and then in, in um, relatively recent times, water rights for irrigators were separated from land and broken up into a way that they could be traded. And there's this sort of orthodox view that that's been a you know global success story that Australia's water market is the best in the world. Fundamentally, it's worked and it's been terrific. And um, none of that's true, all right. Mm. Um, so plenty of commentators, well, not plenty, but a couple of commentators with interesting sort of backgrounds and interesting interests have um, come and said, well, you know, the market's actually not as bad as as um, as you paint it. Of course they would say that. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm very happy to sort of do specific rebuttals. But I think the the general point is we could have written 
a book about um, how the market was amazing and how, you know, that it's so beautifully designed and that, but that would be <laughs> ridiculous, right? Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we haven't written that. <clears throat> I do remember that you mentioned in one of your panels about this idea of the design versus how it works in practice. So we mm. might draw that in a little bit later, but I do just want to pick up on the process before we dive into what you've prefaced there, which is, um, it actually is in chapter 31. So we're going towards the back of the book, but you do highlight the types of research that you went through. And it wasn't necessarily just heading to an archive or doing desktop research. You really did get out into the field and you write that as part of our water journey, we saw a lot of creeks, rivers and basin communities. We swam in the Murray at Achuka and Yarrawonga and Mungabarina, the Murrumbidgee at Wagga Wagga, the Halkwa near Jamison, the Ovens at Bright, the Buckland at Puckapunyal, the Yarra at Warburton, the Creek at Yakandanda and the Open Cut at Allen's Flat. We fished for redfin and yellow belly in the irrigation channels at Tatura for trout with a weighted brown nymph on the Goulburn and for carp at Mildura. And it goes on and on. So clearly you've done a bit of a tour of mm. regional Victoria and Australia. And that's something I think which is pretty important to do, given that this book is surrounded and centred not just on people and systems and structures, but also the environment and the communities that live around the Murray Darlings. So in terms of how you gathered the information to make these arguments and to to push this, this position that you've got, what was, I guess, the aim of that? And do you feel mm. that you got a better understanding of the river's significance because of that field work that you were doing? Yeah, great question. So there's something fundamentally um, multidisciplinary about this area and, and you have to approach it with multiple perspectives. You have to bring, a, a, you know, an understanding of, you know, Indigenous rights and issues. You have to bring a bit of a market lens. You have to understand some aspects of farming and food production, you know, regional uh, issues and, and regional needs, that public policy and market design sort of lens. So Scott and I were lucky that we had a bit of a background in all of those spaces to different degrees. Um, and so we brought that multidisciplinary perspective. Um, I grew up in the basin, so um, in, in around um, Albury and Wagga. I've got a family at Griffith or just outside Griffith at um, Gulgowie. And Scott's also from, from, and I've lived in Bendigo as well, um, and Scott's got a background in regional Victoria. So that was important because we've both done the sort of big city thing as well as the rural thing. And we brought a perspective in particular that was quite different to a lot of the literature and um, a lot of what the regulator, the ACCC, has done, which is that we we spoke to people. We actually spoke to people directly. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we hit the hit the, um, the road, but also through a lot of um, COVID-era sort of interviews as well, through Skype, et cetera. And we spoke to people and we followed the leads and, and we spoke to all sorts of different people, not just the kind of, you know, the, the squeaky wheels. We spoke to people across all parts of politics, across the whole of the basin, and not just farmers and irrigators, but the traders, the model builders, the programmers, the um, the brokers, right? And, and we were able to to follow all sorts of chains of connections, which was fantastic. And in, in some ways to bring a lexicon and an understanding 
so that we could actually speak to those people in a, in a meaningful way because we've done research on you know things like um, energy markets and water markets in the past. And yeah, the other sort of unique perspective that we brought is that in part some of this work came out of some larger work that we've been doing on the history of financial markets and the history of a terrible word, but financialization. So the idea of turning lots of different commodities into financial products. And you'd know before the GFC, there was that incredible and disastrous idea of turning mortgages into tradable securities and creating all sorts of different financial markets in derivatives and so on. So we were able to bring that perspective and that understanding of financial markets and the history of finance to this as well, because a lot of the people writing and, and regulating in this area are bringing you know, different kinds of probably narrower economic perspectives and not necessarily a financial market perspective. So the end result of the book, I liken it as a bit of a mixture of a kind of, it's a bit of an ABC sort of four corners <laughs> Australian <laughs> story sort of interview or series of interviews where you hear the farmers' voices and you hear the other voices coming out. But it's also a bit of a Michael Lewis sort of um, flash boys finance book as well. And um, yeah, the readers all judge, but um, I think we've tried to blend those two things uh, reasonably well. Um, and so it's a really important part of the book is that the people's voices speak through. And the last point I'd make about that is talking to the traders and talking to the brokers, one of the most remarkable things, and this, this happened in the US in relation to energy markets as well, is that they talk. They're happy to talk about what they've been doing. And so we've been able to capture how they actually speak about their activities and how they justify themselves, how they kind of feel about the morality and the, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the huge transfers of wealth that they're creating, that they're um, facilitating. So it's you know, an absolute privilege to be the ones to, to capture this story uh, and to tell it. And um, a large part of it, as I said, is that multidisciplinary perspective and then trying to capture all of those different threads and those voices and put it into a framework where the reader can actually navigate through. And I think our main contribution is, is that bringing it into a, a framework of clarity um, so that we can sort the different kinds of financial phenomena and the different kinds of market conduct so that people can actually really see what's going on and they can differentiate, for example, between what the pension front funds are doing and what the active day traders and arbitrage traders are doing. Uh, and they can say, well, actually, this thing really has been a disaster uh, and to um, push for change as a result of that. Yeah, this is obviously a very practical book in that regard, and it needs to be. And we will clearly show the impetus for that in this interview. So I'm just going to jump into the history and the context of what we're going to be discussing, which is obviously the marketization or the commodification of water in Australia. And you talk about in this book the Indigenous connection with rivers, which is clearly a major feature of dreaming and the connection with country. And, you know, rivers are not seen as this kind of separate entity like we might see them as this kind of resource that has a particular function. Obviously, rivers are have much greater significance and there's been a, a huge amount of sophisticated knowledge, first people's knowledge around rivers and water bodies in Australia. So there's that portion of Australian history. And then there's also the early 1900s, where you point out that even in 1903, Alfred Deakin, who was the second Prime Minister of Australia, saw irrigation as a three-way partnership 
it was simultaneously a private state authority and community responsibility. And you go on to say, for Deakin, the prospect of water becoming a private monopoly was unthinkable. And he even actually went to California on a trip and was reported to have said, there's a great quote in the book, which I won't read out in full, but he was saying that we needed to guard against the rise of local monopolies and the ruination of valuable schemes by the activities of disaffected individuals and small minorities. And this was all in regard to irrigation. So I wanted to draw in that early history because it is so fascinating to know where we've come from and then obviously to compare and contrast to where we are now. So could you just take us through that early history, which you point out, and obviously the period between 1917 up until 1990 when you write that engineers reigned supreme in Australian water management? Sure, and that's a really important lens for the whole book as well, is to bring that lens of history and, and a historian's eye to this story. So you're right, in, in both the pre-European period, which was um, some 60,000 plus years, and then uh, in the early part of the um, 20th century, there was that real emphasis of water and land being integrated, being a whole, right? And so the way that, uh, as far as I understand it, Indigenous people see uh, countries that water and land are inseparable, and they're both part of country and both part of a, uh, a unified totality. And Deakin very much, um, in different terms and <laughs> for different reasons, uh, landed in the same place, that water and land should be connected. And that was really the orthodoxy. Um, there were small examples of people informally trading their water rights. So if they, if they, they had a, a surplus in a particular season and maybe a neighbour needed a bit more water for a particular planting, uh, they may trade the water even for, you know, for a few dollars or for a slab of beer or, or just for nothing, right? So it was very much localised and, and informal trading. But then if you fast forward to the sort of the end of the engineers era, so the 20th century water is very much about using engineering to harness rivers and to change flows and to expand irrigation. Um, if you fast forward to sort of the end of that era, which was, I guess, the 1990s or the late 80s, where you had multiple voices in public policy circles. You still had the engineers, but you had you know, strong, a stronger environmental voice and, and even stronger voice of economists and finance people and market people. And so if you think about Victoria, for example, uh, in the 1990s, in the, in the, um, you know, the Kennett era, um, there was all the privatisations and um, marketisation happening in energy and very much the same people and the same ideas affected water. And the concept was that um, if you separated water from land, so, so if I'm an irrigator and I own land in an irrigation district, you'd separate the water from the land and make the water tradable. So the actual water right was broken up into different parts. It was broken up into a, a permanent entitlement. Uh, it was broken up into an annual allocation uh, and it was broken up into other components like delivery rights and um, extraction rights. And then the idea was that they would be able to trade that as a commodity and trade those different components, particularly the entitlement and the allocation. Now, in principle, if you sort of I don't know, if you kind of blur your eyes and, and don't think about some of the obvious problems, then that sounds like a clever idea because the concept was 
that the water would then, uh, the water rights would go to the people who valued them the most, and that that would coincide with the highest economic return from using the water, uh, and therefore um, we would make uh, the best use collectively as a community and as a basin and as a country of a um, scarce resource. But there are a whole lot of problems <laughs> in practice, right? So it's a lovely yeah. idea in theory, um, but there's a whole bunch of problems with, in practice. One was that this happened before really we had the full toolkit for properly designing markets like this. So it happened a long time before we really sort of thought about market integrity in, in a proper way and uh, incentive design and that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of the actual aspects around how to design the market in practice and how to regulate market conduct was really underdone. Um, but also when you think about it across the basin, the interconnected um, rivers in the basin, water in one spot is not the same as water in another spot. <laughs> you know, the water yeah. is not disconnected from place. Uh, in a fundamental sense. For example, um, water at the top of the um, of the Murray uh, and water at the bottom of the Murray, the, there are different ways you can use the water because of different soils and that kind of thing, different local infrastructure. But also moving water from the top of the Murray to the bottom of the Murray has implications, for example, in water losses, in um, erosion and, and um, bank, damage to banks. It has implications for um, as river banks, not not financial banks. Um, it has implications for uh, water, cold water pollution. Sometimes, for example, it impacts the um, ecology, and there are other sorts of implications as well. So, in the design of the market, though, a lot of those sorts of impacts, like uh, adverse hydrological impacts and adverse environmental impacts weren't really taken into account in the way that the market worked and in the way that water was priced. So lovely idea in theory, but in practice there are, you know, a whole there's a whole catalogue of reasons why it's been quite dysfunctional. Um, mm. So that's one a problem with design. The other sort of aspect of this trend and thinking about it historically, um, there were early decisions made to widen as much as possible the scope of the, the geographical scope of trading with this sort of financially pure, economically pure idea that the more that you could you know, expand the boundaries of this market, the more you'd get those sort of efficiency benefits. And there was that kind of argument. And then there was an argument about maximizing the number of participants that could be in the market. And in particular, allowing in banks and quasi banks who didn't actually irrigate and who didn't want the water for irrigation purposes but who would be able to actively trade in the market. So that was very much, again, a spirit of the times where it was about minimising barriers to entry and maximising competition and maximising market participation. And there was this sort of narrow idea that if it was a novel market, then banks and others would help provide what they called at the time liquidity, which is essentially deepening the market and being there when, when trading needed to happen. But what happened was, uh, at the same time, there was this incredible shift in what banks actually were and the meaning of the word bank. In the maybe in the 50s up to the early 70s, banks were relatively tired, stodgy, fiduciary institutions. But then in the 80s, um, with securitization and uh, financialization and a whole bunch of things happening, particularly in the UK and the US, with what they call the big bang financial reforms, they turned into something quite different. They turned into these sort of, you know, trading houses and um, the whole ethos 
uh, and impact of banking shifted. But there are still old-fashioned ideas of what banks might be driving in, in public policy circles. So you had this disconnect where we let the banks in to do some sort of pro-social liquidity purpose, which was a mistake, but you know, understandable at the time. And then once the banks were inside, they had a field day because the market itself was really underdeveloped. So there were multiple platforms, multiple sub-markets, this incredible cloak of complexity we talked about. And the banks brought all of the you know, tested techniques and tools that they'd been using in energy markets and derivatives markets and futures markets. And they went berserk in there, just like they went berserk everywhere else. So um, they could dominate the movement of water between valleys. They could dominate the buying and selling just through a speed advantage and through informational advantage. They gathered information about farms and collected all sorts of valuable information about water rights and accounts and, and flows. And they, you know, they took it over. So that was step one. Uh, and step two, as uh, you know, thinking about the history of this, as the scale of ambition grew and as they got more and more kind of comfortable in this new market, they realised they could do whole-of-basin tactics. They could pursue whole-of-basin tactics, including clever movement of water rights between valleys that maximised uh, trading profits but also they could partner up with large uh, novel farms on otherwise unpromising and unirrigated land. Um, they could get money from pension funds and others to fund these uh, low return, not very water efficient, not very economical, but vast plantations. And then they could use that those connections back in the market either through uh, getting extra capital or extra access to water or through influencing scarcity. So what happened now, what, if you fast forward to where we are now, what happened is that we now have a situation where, where the day-to-day -day trading is dominated by a small number of essentially hedge funds and quasi-banks, and they're pursuing this whole-of-basin strategy, which is essentially about maximising scarcity um, so we've got to the point now where it's relatively wet in the basin. It has been for the last sort of year or 18 months. But sooner or later, we're going to go into a drought, which is you know, like clockwork in the basin. We've got to the point now where because of these sorts of tactics, the permanent plantings in the basin and particularly on the Murray, the water that they need every year to survive is larger than the amount of water we expect in a drought. So... From a farming and a resource management point of view, that's a disaster because essentially we're going to have to, you know, some of the, some of the crops are just going to have to die. But from a market point of view, and if you're a financial person, it's exactly like how the energy traders cheered on the bushfires in the US when they disrupted the energy supplies. It's paradise because you're creating this incredible ramping scarcity that's forcing prices up and forcing farmers essentially to be uh, desperate. So again, that's, that's a disaster for farmers and it's a disaster for, for natural resource management and for agriculture, but it's paradise for the traders. Now, final point, you could argue that this is the, the banks and the traders doing what they do, and that's you know, quite a valid argument. They've been let in to do exactly this. This is, this is what they do everywhere else as well. But the way that this market is regulated it's even more hands-off and laissez-faire than it is in, say, the stock market or the derivatives market, right? So a lot of the normal market conduct rules around uh, avoiding 
insider trading and conflicts of interest and um, false impression of active trading don't apply to the water market, even though it's been financialized, so that the traders have been able to go even further in this space. And fundamentally, it's a series of decisions by government yeah. that have allowed this to happen. So I guess where we land in the book is, you know, if, if you stack up all of these problems and all of these policy missteps, we really need to look again at how this, uh, you know, really, really crucial resource is, is managed. And you did mention, obviously, one of those permanent plantations and plantings are the almond farms, which really draw on a huge amount of water and, as you said, should and when a drought does occur in the Murray-Darling Basin, that's going to be a massive issue. And you pointed out that there's been a 1,500% growth in that particular area of farming since 2000. So these are things which perhaps were foreseen or unforeseen, depending on who you are, when this was all set up. But it is really interesting to go into that moment of when things were set up and to look at the governments involved, because it wasn't just the federal government. Obviously, state governments have a role to play in this policy area as well. So I wanted to speak about that with you, Stuart. So just heading back a little bit to a key point that you mentioned around, you know, laissez-faire and the way that this was set up. You write that in 1998, the former Industry Commission, which was given the oddly Orwellian name, the Productivity Commission, which we all know now and is abbreviated as the PC, that shift in name marked a shift in philosophy away from industry's assistance and towards free market laissez-faire neoclassical economic precepts. And the similarly oriented ACCC, as well as the Productivity Commission, became a prominent advocate for economic reform. And you point out, and I found this really interesting, was the role of the Productivity Commission and the ACCC in pushing really hard to have the market, the water market, they consistently were arguing, should be as unrestricted as possible. And that way, the discipline of the market would be the strongest and the water would be, in theory, in the best hands. So I was really interested in these arguments that were going on in those bodies, which are clearly ones that are meant to be and are independent bodies, but they advise government and have a clear role to play in a number of policy areas. But then there's also the federal government and the state governments, the, the COAG, which we used to have up until recently, and their role. So I wondered if you could take us through when the market was being set up and then also in the early years of the market um, in terms of the, the limits that were put in place and the pushing back and forth about these limits and should there be any, what was the role of these different governments and particularly looking at Victoria, for example? So some of these lenses that we now use now, uh, so that we use now like um, Indigenous rights, like market conduct, like market information, I think it's fair to say they weren't really on the radar early on uh, when this was being sort of first set up. But some of the basin governments, including Victoria, did hold on for a long time to limits, for example, between moving uh, for moving water between valleys. So the, the sort of um, local movement of water was restricted and they held on for a long time to um, limits on outside participation in the market. 
But there are a whole bunch of really strong forces pushing in another direction, and, and you're 100% right. The ACCC and the PC were really important in that, in advising uh, the national government. And I think it's fair to say uh, that right now, the ACCC in particular, which has just done a major water markets uh, inquiry, is somewhat conflicted uh, in this in this area. The ACCC and the PC have a sort of pro-market approach in their bones, right? They believe in markets. They're set up to push, you know, competition and market solutions. And a lot of the time that's that's fine and that's valid, right? And that was the this essence of the national competition policy, for example. But I think we have a much more sophisticated understanding of markets these days. And I think if they looked at it objectively, they would agree that uh, even the best market in theory needs to be implemented properly in practice. And this hasn't this hasn't been implemented in practice. Now, the ACCC, though, has been regulating uh, this market for the better part of a decade. And it's extremely difficult, first of all, for them to turn around now and say, well, actually, we were wrong. We thought it was great in theory, but we should have paid more attention to market design. We should have paid more attention to the scope of the market, to market conduct, to market information, to integrity, et cetera, right? It's very, very difficult for them to turn around and say that now, although I strongly suspect that there's, there are different voices within the, uh, the ACCC uh, and different perspectives and that these things are actively debated uh, within the regulator. But the other sort of problem around design, there's only so much that the ACCC can do because the ACCC is a competition body. It's not a financial markets body. So they're the standard sort of ACCC regulatory role and the standard ACCC cases are about you know, industrial uh, and commercial competition cases, right? So pursuing consumer protection cases or monopoly power uh, in things like you know, retailing and, and um, oligopolistic markets. But what we have now with water is very much a financial market. And so it's the sorts of things that ASIC is grappling with and, and not always succeeding, but grappling with in 21st century financial markets where you have phenomena like short selling and front running and all sorts of different kinds of clever and nefarious high-speed trading. That's the reality of the water market and it's not the ACCC's space. So... As, as the sort of designated regulator, the ACCC can only do so much. <laughs> it's not, yeah. their, not their decision about where they're regulating and what their scope is. It really it ultimately comes down to the, to the federal government to say, well, actually, we made a mistake. This has turned into a financial market, but it's not being regulated as one. It's not being regulated in the sense that we need to much more have a much stronger focus on regulating conduct within the market than we do, but also the ideas of market power and market dominance uh, that we're applying to this market have come from a different space. They come from the wrong space, right? The way you think about market power and market share, for example, in supermarkets and petrol retailing and I don't know what, freight and logistics is very different to the way you think about market conduct and market dominance in a financial market, right? But that's one of the basic sort of categorical errors that people are making in this space. So. Again, that's not something that the ACCC can solve. And so they're kind of a little bit spinning their wheels, A, because they're conflicted, because they're market people um, and they don't want to criticise a market, and B, because they've knocked off the toolkit. They just don't have the toolkit. 
And it does remind me of a point that you highlight, which is that the ASIC Act and the Corporations Act don't apply to these water markets. So there's clearly a gaping hole there in terms of regulation and the laws that are applying to the types of behaviour and activity that is allowable. Um, And you do highlight a, a whole range of those. And there is this funny term called arbitrage which sounds all sophisticated, but as you've said, um, it's really just about buying at a low price and selling at a high price to maximise your profit and get the most money out of things. And obviously that's something which traders are doing to increase their financial pie and the benefits that they want to get. But it certainly does mean that farmers are really affected and, and you certainly pretty clearly highlight that the farmers feel that they've been lied to and ripped off and that they have been put in a really untenable position um, and they've almost been forced to engage in this market and uh, and you even, as you've said, you, you went and spoke to a range of farmers and other stakeholders and, you know, there are some people who did sell off their permanent entitlements and were ostracised by their community and, you know, there's a lot of complexity in terms of the human story of these markets. It's not just some kind of abstract concept that happens at arm's length from humans or from Mm. morality. There is this deep emotive and also moral question about how this is affecting farmers, how it affects Indigenous people and others, other communities around the Murray-Darling Basin, as well as obviously the environment. So I, I just wanted to ask about the farmers in particular, given that their voice is quite prominent in this book, and I think they should be drawn out here. What were some of the complexities and difficulties that farmers were having and what were they telling you about the water markets and how it was or wasn't working for them? That's a really good question. Well, that, I think that's absolutely central to the story and central to the book. Uh, this this um, huge power imbalance and informational uh, imbalance between farmers on the one hand and the hedge funds and traders on the other. The farmers, a, a lot of them, were really you know, struggling to use the trading platforms. They were struggling even to get a, a secure, you know, internet or you know, a reliable internet connection or a phone connection. So on the one hand, you had the sort of you know clunky Harvey Norman laptops and um, you know dial-up internet sometimes. On the other hand, you had you know these trading rooms with faster than a billionth of a second trading. So the upshot of that is that all of the gains of trade. Uh, we're going to the to the professional traders naturally, who um, do that sort of arbitrage, as you said, as their daily work. They go into their trading rooms every day and they just do that. Whereas farmers are trying to farm, and they're trying to do their day jobs. So there's this sort of concept in the Productivity Commission and the ACCC with this idealised view of the market that, um, in their words, you know, there'd be willing sellers and willing buyers and that they would transact and, and uh, would all be marvellous. But if you say that in the basin, if you talk about willing sellers, people are pretty angry and they get pretty upset about that because um, a lot of the people who are selling water aren't willing sellers, they're desperate sellers. And a lot of the people who are buying water aren't uh, willing buyers, they're desperate buyers. Uh, and so that's the situation we've got where a lot of the gains from trade have gone to these um, external players and the farmers are being forced, uh, that the water is being underbought uh, through market manipulation and other things. And um, they're being forced to pay basically the walkaway price. So that they're paying their maximum for water. 
uh, and they're making a really terrible choice. Do they want to stay on the land and therefore pay the maximum for water or do they want to walk? That's the problem. And there's a huge anxiety uh, in the basin among farmers about the next generation. So they're seeing this sort of consolidation of water rights um, with you know, some of these big owners, big external owners, and they're seeing how the price is being driven to the maximum and how that's a catalyst for you know, industrialisation of farming and it's a yeah. catalyst for those kinds of big almond farms you talked about. So there's a lot of, a lot of anxiety, a lot of intergenerational fear, and a lot of desperation. And so, you know, the upshot of this book is that we've, we've really tried to capture that and listen to, to the farmers uh, in ways that a lot of other people haven't. Yeah, and there are a lot of ecological costs for the financial distress that this market causes because when you combine the sale of water as well as the abandonment of farms, they're all having a tangible impact on the landscape. You write that dormant and deserted farms have become havens for weeds and pests and an irrigator had said to you that people have sold their water off so they're not irrigating and they're leaving the snails and the birds and rabbits and weeds, which is something that's clearly another factor that should be taken into account when we're looking at these water markets and how they're working in practice as opposed to the grand theory of neoliberalism that began all of this. When we're looking at these water traders and bankers who are buying and selling water and not actually utilising it, but really using it as a money-making tool, I mean, what do they say to you and what did you glean from them um, in terms of how they see the market? Because obviously it would be quite a different perspective from the farmers. Mm, definitely. Well, they told it to us very raw. They said that, you know, they were making a lot of money, first of all. Um, they told us that they could use the rules against farmers and to make make extra money. They said that they could pretend to be irrigators when they're actually traders by having these uh, relationships with those, some of those mega farms. So they could pretend that they were operating in the market for agricultural purposes when they're actually just trying to pursue arbitrage profits. Some of them were quite morally conflicted. They said that they knew that this was ruining rural communities and that it was ripping money out. But they said, well, if we don't do it, someone else will do it. Or, you know, they'll do it because they're supporting their own families with, with the money that they're making. So um, it's, yeah, as I said before, it's the traders are doing what the traders do. The problem is with the market design and that we're allowing them to do that. Um, yeah. That, that it's this sort of hyper market experiment where what should have been about natural resource management and irrigation has turned into essentially a casino for uh, investment banks. Very well put, Stuart. Just finally, when we're looking at the solution, because that is something you said and we've prefaced at the beginning of this conversation is this book is meant to and hopefully will have practical outcomes. When we're thinking about how to fix these things, clearly it's not going to be the AACCC or the Productivity Commission necessarily that are going to be able to do these things. It's about government. So I'm wondering is it really the crux of it about political will and facing facts and I guess losing some face about the fact that something isn't working and it needs to be fixed or are there other things in addition to that? Well, it, it, 100% it has to be a, a, a political response from the community. So people actually engaging with politics to say this needs to change. Um, the model, the new model, uh, there's all sorts of different aspects of what reform is needed. But fundamentally, this is a really good example of how that sort of neoliberal pro-market 
paradigm, which dominated up until maybe the eve of COVID, you know, has major flaws. So we really, this is this is an absolute example and catalyst of saying, you know, yes, we can harness the private sector and markets to some degree, but we need to think about all of these other values and these other considerations as well. And we need to do that as a community. So if you thought about this market again today, and if you were building it from scratch, of course, we would provide a much, much stronger uh, emphasis on Indigenous rights, on Indigenous water ownership. Of course, we would have much more of a sense of the banks and hedge funds maybe doing in this space what they did in the mortgage market and in the derivatives market. So you just wouldn't, it wouldn't look like this if we designed it today. And so sooner or later, we need to pull the Band-Aid off and say, look, this, this thing hasn't worked. It was an interesting experiment. It was a moment in time, but we need to do something different and we need to really you know, do that collectively. Yeah. Absolutely. Stuart, it's just been really fascinating, as always, to chat with you and to nerd out, even on (laughs) markets and finance as well as history. So I really appreciate your time. And also congratulations to you and Scott on this book. It's called Sold Down the River, How Robber Barons and Wall Street Traders Cornered Australia's Water Market. It's out through text publishing. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for sitting down with us. And I hope that people can check it out. And um, also to think about this as an election issue, among many other issues, because this clearly does play into climate change uh, just as much as it does the economy. Thanks, Amy. That was terrific. I've just been chatting there with historian and author Stuart Kells, and as I said, you can check out his book, co-authored with Scott Hamilton, Sold Down the River.